The Money Show. The Big Issue. The big issue this evening is all about corporate espionage. And it's astonishing to uh, see the lengths that some companies will go to. And it sounds terribly dramatic. And I think it is. I've got no doubt that companies spy on each other all the time. They, they'll send their staff in to check store layouts and to check what their rivals are charging for things like baked beans, for example. There is a level, I think, of probably acceptable espionage when it comes you've got to know what your competitors are doing you've got to know how they're doing it and you've got to try and do it better so you monitor each other's specials and you do your damnedest to get the best price for your suppliers and you try and do better than your competitors at that and that then influences your success but there's a dark underbelly to corporate espionage as well bernard hotz is the head of the business crimes and forensics team at worksman's attorneys and i was surprised mr hotz to learn that you were once constable hotz were you you, you were a policeman we're talking about 26 years ago, Bruce, but uh, yes. What, what kind of a policeman were you? Did they give you a gun? Um, yes, a gun, and now, I, and now I hold a dictaphone, rather. And, and a dictaphone is probably a far scarier weapon in your hands than a gun was. I would like to believe so. Okay, now, how do you take um, that transition from um, from wearing a blue with a little cap and, uh, and an outfit like that and terribly uncomfortable surge uniform uh, to, to carrying a briefcase and a, and a dictaphone? How was that transition? How did you make that, that leap? Well, Bruce... I think we're living in interesting times and I've always been fascinated by the law and uh, rather interesting to listen to your previous guest talking about business and the challenges of being an entrepreneur and how the little man's going to take on the big man and how it can be done. Uh, The reality is I picked up an interesting article this afternoon which is headed the world is getting more corrupt and and these are the five worst offenders. This was an international corruption barometer survey that I picked up and it's quite astounding just to understand what's really going on in business. Who are the big five offenders according to this article that you picked up? Well, bearing in mind this is an article that spans uh, 107 countries and number one is the police, number two the judges, number three public officials and civil servants, number four political parties and number five the citizenry. But okay, so tell me something I don't know then. Well, <laughs> I the thought it was actually named five big companies. Okay. Yeah, the interesting thing is they rate them one to five uh, on the scale of serious corruption. And the one that's rated the highest coming in at 3.8 is none other than political parties. Yeah. I mean, the, the point is that the world is full of vested interests. The world is full of everybody trying to, to make a go. And we see corruption around us all the time. So much so, I suspect, that we don't even recognize much corruption as corruption anymore. Simply because uh, in in our world, um, the, the boundaries have been blurred significantly. Absolutely. I mean, you raised an issue about um, corporate espionage, people spying on each other. Is it wrong to go and see what your competitor is doing? Why is it wrong? And I, I mean, if one looks at the principles, the basic principles of law, there's nothing wrong with lawful competition. There is something wrong with unlawful competition. And there's something wrong with stealing your competitor's confidential information. There is something wrong with selling a business to somebody who pays a lot of money for it. And you go and sit up across the road the very next day and go into competition, notwithstanding the fact that you've signed a restraint of trade and you've agreed to honor agreements. So there are all these type of things that come into the, into the equation. 
Uh, okay, well, let, let, let's look at it, I mean, in terms of what is acceptable and what is not. We have people who leave companies all the time and go across the road and either go and work for a competitor or they go and start up their own shop, depending on the business that they're, they're in. And, and that's perfectly normal. Nobody can stop you from earning a living, can they? Well, we're talking about a principle which people may very well be familiar with. It's called the restraint of trade. And whilst everybody is entitled to earn a living, our courts have held that restraints of trade are valid. Now, one can't merely say that as a blanket statement that every restraint of trade is valid. The courts have said that a company is entitled to protect what I call its crown jewels. And it's more than entitled to say to somebody, you have this knowledge, you're being remunerated for working uh, in this company and your loyalty is to be given towards this company. If you're going to leave in advance, when you join this company, we're requiring you to sign a restraint of trade. That says you may go into competition with me after the elapse of a certain period. That's to try and even out the, the ability to compete fairly. Uh, and the restraint of trade principle in South Africa, you say it has been upheld by the courts. Um, just take me through that. It's been upheld by the highest courts. The courts are saying if, if a, a company is entitled to protect um, its, proprietary, its proprietary information, I call it the crown jewels for want of a better sure. term, um, as long as a company is being reasonable, what is reasonable? We talk about <laughs> the duration of a restraint. We yeah. talk about the territory that the restraint is to be enforced in. So, for instance, if a company is conducting business only in Johannesburg, it would be unreasonable to try and restrain somebody from ke- competing throughout the entire, um, throughout the entire South Africa. Um, it would also be unreasonable to to try and prevent somebody from competing for a period of, say, five years or ten years. But when one looks at a period of perhaps a year, maybe two years, depending on the nature of the business, as long as there's something that the company is entitled to protect, the courts have said that's fully it's a it's a valid it's a valid position in law to adopt, and if somebody agrees to binding themselves to restraint of trade agreement, the courts expect them to honour it. But but that okay, that, that, that comes down to that, doesn't it? I mean, and many people would simply refuse to sign a restraint of trade. It, it it's uh, it could be professional suicide, couldn't it? You know, one's got to look at a position where somebody wants a job, um, depending on the position that they may occupy within the company. Um, very often, the refusal to sign a restraint of trade may not be so easy for them if they want to get the job. Sure. But so too, I mean, you know, if people are are taking up employment within a company, th- the, the primary issue is fiduciary duties. People talk about fiduciary duties. People talk about trust. An employer should trust an employee and an employee should trust an employer. You are being let into a safe in order to, in order to perform your best, in order to promote the best interests of the company. And a company is entitled to protect mm. its, its valuables. How serious then is the concept of corporate espionage? It sounds terribly James Bond and very dramatic, but, but how serious is the issue of corporate espionage in the South African environment? It's happening more than people realize, Bruce. Um, Obviously, um, it's not appropriate to name specific instances because one deals with companies who um, are on the exchange and it's sure. not good for shareholder values and for, she- and, and for boards to, to publicize this, but it is happening more than people would like to admit.
Okay, broadly speaking, what sort of corporate espionage versus yeah, somebody going in across the road and starting up a competitor? Um, the difference between, and you've explained the difference between that and corporate espionage. What, what sort of levels of corporate espionage are we seeing? Are we seeing people sort of planting people on boards? Are we seeing people planting each other, uh, people in management teams? Um, yes, Bruce, you, you are actually seeing that happening. Um, in fact, um, there's an example that uh, that perhaps I can refer to, which happened many many years ago, um, and and it saw the scrapping of the RSC levies, um, and that that was as a result of people being planted in certain very high profile companies um, to create. Havoc within the companies, all for the purpose of diverting funds out of those companies to people who had mischievous agendas, and and so so if one looks at modern, if one looks at present times, there are there are at various high levels. You've got to understand what's happening in the world economics out there, and people come in with agendas that aren't always in the best interests of the companies by which with which they are employed. Bernard Hartz, the head of business crimes and forensics team at Worksman's Attorney. So what is corporate espionage costing South Africa every year? Broad guess, Bernard. Bruce, billions, really billions. Um, it's it's very hard to give a, a, a definite figure to it, but if one has a look at the stats, um, if one can believe stats, there, over the past nine years, there has been a dramatic increase in uh, in crime and especially commercial crime within South Africa. So it, it does extend into the billions. But why, if there are guys like you and all of the big law firms have got forensics divisions and uh, the, the privatization of white-collar crime prosecution has been extensive and very successful, um, is there this massive explosion? Is it just so out of control um, that uh, people feel as if they can get away with it? Bruce, you refer to an interesting concept, the privatization of, of prosecution. Absolutely, which is what has happened. Well, uh, not, to, not to my knowledge to the extent that perhaps it should be happening. Okay. Um, and, and really, there, therein lies the problem that I have been advocating for a long time. I believe that the effective way to try and fight commercial crime is through a partnering between um, law lawyers, um, forensic uh, experts, who work together with law enforcement and prosecutorial authorities. Never to usurp, and this is the most important thing, never to usurp the role of law enforcement or prosecutors, but to bring to the table levels of expertise that perhaps are lacking in either law enforcement and prosecutorial uh, structures or both, and try and assist in combating crime. All good in theory, but the skills have left the police. The skills, in in some cases, have left the NPA. Um, And, you know, it is about if you want to get a decent case built, um, you you go along to you guys or you go along to the guys at ENS and you you hire the lawyers and you say, please investigate. And then um, it gets ultimately it's left up to you to extract the confessions and to get the uh, to build up the entire dossier and then to hand it over to the prosecutor and saying, we've done the deal. Can you just formalize it, please? I mean, that's my understanding of how it's really working right now. Well, you see, 
that's the problem. We've done the deal. Can you formalize it? Yeah. it it's, not, it's not really that. I mean, what, sh- what is happening, especially if one looks within the structure that, that I have within, uh, within Worksman's, is that we are there to try and build a case. And you mentioned all top policemen are no longer in the force. Well, you'd find that a lot of these top policemen are now employed in private sure. companies where they are being financially rewarded for the work that they're doing. They have the infrastructure at their disposal to enable them to conduct the investigations in the manner which is required, bearing in mind the levels of sophistication that one is seeing in today's commercial crimes. And one is then, what what you have to do is you have to um, you have to investigate the case with the way it should be done so that the prosecutor is presented with a docket with evidence that is ironclad, that is admissible, so that the prosecutor can, you know, really, really do his or her best in trying to obtain a conviction against the, the accused. Mm, absolutely right. You struck a chord when you were talking all about restraints of trade, because restraints of trade, of course, is one way in which companies can prevent, uh, protect themselves from uh, being sort of, I suppose, uh, impacted negatively by former staff members. George has just got a quick question for you, Bernard, this evening from Limpopo this evening. Hello, George. Yes, Bruce, I just want to know if your company can force you to sign a restraint of trade after working for them for five years. So you've been employed for five years, and now they're saying we want to change the terms and conditions of your employment. Yes, correct. Thank can you. they do that? Thank you, George. Um, Bernard, um, the legalities around restraints of trade? Bruce, I don't profess to be a labor lawyer, but what I can say is as follows. Um, the time to the time to bargain with your conditions of employment are firstly when you commence your employment. If during the course of your employment um, there, there's a there's a change required to your terms of employment, that cannot be unilaterally imposed. There has to be consensus. There has to be negotiation and consensus from both employer and employee. But as I say, I'm not a labour lawyer, but that's as I understand it. Sure, and, and that I would understand it the same way too. But you and I live in the real world. George lives in the real world. He's been employed by the company for the last five years. He's on his way up through the company, and suddenly the company wants to promote him and make him more responsible. Give him access to corporate secrets and if he chooses not to sign a restraint of trade well he's entitled not to but then he won't get the promotions that may be reality yeah and that's the tragic reality for many people i suppose uh, george so sorry we can't be any clearer than that but um, yeah practicality does does come there i mean when you talk about this costing billions of rand when we look at the issue of of, of white collar crime Broadly, do you feel like you're winning the battle or is this just the bottomless pit of business opportunity for guys like you in the forensic space? Well, I, I, I'm hesitant to say that I think we've got a long way to go, both in South Africa and internationally, to sit back and say we are winning the battle. Yeah, so, but, but I mean, are you finding yourself busier every year? Is your division growing and growing as a result of um, the sort of work pressure that you face? I do find us getting busier and busier. And in fact, it's interesting, Bruce, because traditionally I am a litigation lawyer, which means I really specialize in civil litigation. But what I'm finding these days that in most traditionally civil litigation cases, there is this criminal angle of corruption seeping in more and more. Criminal angle of corruption. I mean, but is it? And we, we've seen corruption in the public sector. We've seen corruption in the private sector as well. Is it running rampant? 
unfortunately, I would say yes. On that cheerful note, Bernard Hotz, I look forward to seeing you at an airport uh, pretty soon. Um, yeah, I've seen, seen him recently on Car Train, but I will, next time we'll get off our cell phones and say hello properly. Bernard Hotz, who is with Worksman's, he is at the Business Crimes and Forensics teams with a gloomy prognosis as to what is going on, really, in the background of your workspace.